One, two, three, and four. It's my intention to complete this as quickly as I can within the next four or five hours, and I think we'll be, we'll be fine, okay? At the end of my freshman year, I picked up Bailey Smith's book, Real Evangelism, and uh, it was a, about a month before I went to be a summer missionary uh, near Cave City, Kentucky. I was housed at Yogi Bear's Jellystone RV Park. And I was uh, a resort missionary there. I uh, got to lead someone to Christ every week I was there, 10 people during the summer, and was a youth minister in a church nearby where we had a marvelous, marvelous uh, ministry and opportunity to serve there. Uh, most of the folks were from uh, the northern part of the, uh, in the Midwestern part of the, of the nation. And so most of them were from outside the Bible Belt that came to this particular resort. Um, well, that was on my mind as I was reading um, Real Evangelism by Bailey Smith. And there was a, um, there was a, uh, a particular chapter where he talked about the status of global evangelism, and it broke my heart. It did. I could not believe that there were so many people dying every, every minute that didn't know Jesus. Uh, back in 2000 and, um, back in, well, 1999, it was about 52 a minute. Uh, by the time I went to Southwestern in 2006, it was more than 60 a minute dying, adults dying without Christ. Uh, well, these are the kind of figures that he articulated uh, there. In that particular book, he wrote 1978. Well, I'm reading it in 1984. And I, I said for a couple of weeks uh, in that May, I was taking a Maymester class uh, there at the school, and I kept saying, well, God, either you don't love all the people of the world, as you have claimed, or some of us aren't hearing your call to be uh, world Christians, and uh, you know, we're, we're not vigorous, and we're not given and surrendered. Well, I said that for a couple of weeks, and then finally it dawned on me that God was speaking to my heart, and I wasn't answering. And so I, I surrendered at that moment to be a Christian with a worldview on mission with Jesus Christ. And I told God, wherever that takes me, whatever you want me to do, that's precisely what I would do. But I can no more please God without missions than I can please God without worship. Uh, be, being a world Christian is as much a part of the Christian responsibility, uh, supporting missions and being cross-cultural where we are, uh, is as much a part of the Christian life as is worship and purity and prayer and holiness. It, it, uh, now, God does call some to serve uh, uh, in a full-time capacity as international missionaries. I don't believe everyone's a missionary. That cheapens the word. But we are all to be on mission with Jesus Christ, supporting that, being available to go. When he leads, um, that is really much of the heart behind uh, what I'll be sharing with you in this particular study. Uh, the intention of this study also is to prepare uh, us for a year of effective outreach uh, locally and um, in the nation. February 12th, Dr. Jerry Vines will be with us, former pastor of First Baptist Church, Jacksonville, Florida, former president of Southern Baptist Convention, one of the most kind and gracious. Uh, men of God, and preaching preachers that I have ever known. And he's excited about coming to Beach Haven. He'll be with us Sunday morning and Sunday night. Then March 26, we will be, in, um, we'll be observing Invite Your One. We want you to get someone to church that day. Third, April 7th and 9th, we've got a disciple now with Ricky Shillette. Um, uh, there's another um, tremendous youth speaker that will be speaking to the teenagers. But Ricky Shillette will address uh, parents 
and will preach Sunday morning, and he really specializes in transgender issues. Uh, the message that morning at worst will be PG-13, although this is not really a sexual issue. It really isn't. It's, a, it's an issue in a different direction. April 23rd through 26th, we've got Tim Williams in for a Harvest Crusade. That'll be much like what we did with Ronnie Hill and uh, how God blessed us marvelously in that time. Uh, June 5th through 11th, Vacation Bible School, and we are considering an evening Vacation Bible School because of the next entry here. Uh, and that is our church-wide mission trip to Indiantown, Florida, June 24th to July 1st. There are many of our people that want to do Vacation Bible School June 5th through the 11th, and they'll take a week off of work there if we do it in the morning. If they do that, they can't go on the mission trip. Uh, it's hard to take off two weeks so close together from work and participate. So we're looking at doing an evening uh, vacation Bible school June 5th through the 11th for, for this year and then so they can take off uh, from work June 24th to July 1st we haven't advertised this but we've already got about 40 hard commitments more than that to go on the mission trip we we've listed about 120 to 130 people we think may go um, and um, the cost right now is hovering around $250 there's a chance it'll be less in fact that's the top price for adults be a different price for teenagers and a different price, lower price for um, uh, children. August 13th, we got an apologetics conference on C.S. Lewis with Ken Keithley, uh, who specializes in C.S. Lewis apologetic. He teaches theology at Southeastern, is an author. He's lectured at Oxford and uh, is a dear friend of mine, and I uh, appreciate him greatly. Then October 22nd, we've got Dr. Bailey Smith in for a one-day crusade. He's an evangelist, former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, and Dr. Smith uh, was the first Southern Baptist to baptize 2,000 in a year when he pastored First Southern Baptist, Dell City, Oklahoma. And I think he did that about 1979, 1980. But he'd been very effective for a long time and has become a gracious friend, and I really, really appreciate him. Well, that, I'm, I'm hoping that this study will fuel us for the year and shape our thinking um, and that we'll be completely open to God by His Spirit and Word shaping us into a missionary people. Now, I... I, I am of the opinion, as uh, others are as well, that the last uh, three verses of the Gospel of Matthew define the subjects of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, there are some New Testament books that summarize their contents early in the book. Some summarize them late. John does it early in the Gospel of John. If you want to know what John is talking about in the Gospel of John, then become very familiar with the first 18 verses. The first 18 verses are a prologue a preparation, a summary of the entire Gospel of John. Matthew does it at the end. And here at the end, in verse 18, on to verse 20, he says, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you, and, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. There are ten subjects that are covered here that Matthew covers in his gospel. And these few verses summarize them. He elaborates on them in the gospel of Matthew. There is the Lord of missions. All authority is given to me, he says. Then there's the condition of missions. All of missions is conditioned upon this item. Go. Go therefore. And then here's the command. Make disciples. And the way this is uh, constructed in the Greek text, the ability to make disciples depends on going. You cannot make disciples unless you go. And so there's an intentional, purposeful going here. The translation, as you go, is not correct. The language won't bear that. 
the um, translation, having gone, make disciples, that, that does not bear up with the language here. That's, that's not a correct translation of this text. Uh, the English versions have got it precisely right. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And then the extent of all nations. Um, so making disciples is evangelism because the status of the nations then were, well, they weren't Christians, they were non-Christians. And so to make a disciple is to win a disciple, to win someone to the Lord. Then the mark of missions. You know how uh, the scripture explains baptism. You, you mark them with baptism. And what, what does baptism portray? What does it dramatize? Baptism dramatizes what? Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you mark these disciples with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They go through the same death, burial, and resurrection that Jesus did. It's also what's happened to their sins and themselves. They, their sins have been crucified, and it will howl at them no more. They've been buried. They've been raised to walk in a newness of life. And then one day, when Jesus comes back for the resurrection, what will he do with these bodies, these Christian bodies? Well, he'll raise them from the dead. And so there's a past, present, and prophetic element to baptism. And we mark disciples with that. We want them to be the people of the death, burial, and resurrection. The past, present, and prophetic. Then the source of missions. We're authorized in the name, not names, plural, but singular, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So right here, we've got three in one. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. And there's some cranky person will say, well, that mathematics doesn't add up. One plus one, pl one plus one plus one equals one. No, 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 you got it all wrong. That's too simple. It's one times one times one that we're thinking about. And so that uh, equals what? Hey, the fourth grade paid off for you, didn't it? Isn't that great? So that's the source of missions. Here's the message of missions. Teaching them to observe all things that I commanded you. Jesus' first command is repent and believe the gospel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So you teach lost people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then there are subsequent uh, items as well. There are five teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew, just like there are five books of the Pentateuch of Moses' writings. And so Jesus is the new Moses. You teach them that. And then there's the companion of missions. Lo, I am with you. And then there's the agents. You. And then there's the limit to the end of the age. We are in a particular age now called the age of grace or the age of the church that's coming to an end one day when Jesus returns and we will not be able to do missions and evangelism after that. There is a shelf life to this. Uh, Mark Cahill from uh, Stone Mountain has written a real popular book on personal evangelism entitled One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. There are two. You can't sin. Thank God. Isn't that great? Number one, you can't sin. Number two, you can't do evangelism in heaven. There's no, there's no need for it. So we have to hurry and get this job done now because time is running short. These are the ten subjects covered in the Gospel of Matthew, and so these will form the major headings of each of the sections we look at. Matthew uses the life and work of Jesus Christ to instruct his congregation in their mission to uh, the Jews and to the Gentiles. So first, let's look at the extent of missions. Now, if I were to redo this, I, I think I would call this the agents of mission. Um, I've, I've reconsidered this in the middle of delivering it for, at uh, 4 o'clock this afternoon, uh, which is not a convenient time to revise your message. But in any case, um, that's, what, uh, that's what I would call it, the agents of mission, verses 1 through 17. Look with me beginning in verse 1. And please don't pass these too quickly. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now that language is used in Genesis. 
the book of the genealogy or the generation. So uh, Matthew here is picking up on Genesis language, portraying Jesus as the new Yahweh and as the new Moses. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot Judah and his Onri brothers. I added that. Uh, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. Ram begot Aminadab. Aminadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Oh my soul, the mouthful that is in these six brief verses. These are the people that God used to place them in the family tree of Jesus. And through these people, God delivered the Messiah to the world. This is the family tree of Jesus. And it goes down to verse 17. And there are several kinds of people that God used to bring the Messiah into the world. One, he's used older people. There's Abraham, who at 75 was given the promise that he and Sarah would have a son. She's 65. And uh, they wait 25 years. God, God's not in a hurry at all. Days I wish he was, but he's not in a hurry. And they, Sarah delivers Isaac at the age of 90. It reminds me of the boys out with his grandfather one day. And he said, uh, Grandpa, how old are you? He said, well, I'm 75. He said, well, that's old enough to be dead. <laughs> well, this is what you have with Abraham. In Romans 4, Paul says he considered his body as good as dead. And then Isaac was born conceived it more. God used also obstinate people for the mission. Um, uh, verse 2, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and his brothers. What a story. Think about all the stories behind all those names. Think about Jacob, whose name means trickster. I mean, he's not out of the womb and he's already grabbing Esau's heel. That's how he tripped people up. And, and then you consider as well Judah. Think of the mess Judah pulled. Uh, back in Genesis 38. And then all of his brothers. The first three brothers that Judah had, the older three brothers, were so wicked, Jacob bypassed them and went to Judah and said, through you, the king will come. The promises will be delivered. Obstinate people. Then God used outcast people. There's Tamar, who prostituted herself to bring Perez into the world, and his brother. There's Rahab, who is the Jericho full-time prostitute. There's Ruth, who is the Moabitess, who is a descendant of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. And then there is Bathsheba. She brings Solomon into the world. God uses each and every one of these. Now, they weren't presumptuous on God's grace. No, no, not at all. They repented. They got right with God. And God raised them up and used them. Then God uses outstanding people for the mission. You know, I think it'd be wise to select a celebrity or some high-profile person in the United States and start praying for him. I think one in particular needs it right now. He desperately needs it. And anyone in his position desperately needs it. But pray for him. But here's some outstanding people. There's David, Solomon, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Hezekiah, Josiah. These are familiar names with those who know the Old Testament and the great heroic deeds uh, that they um, perform in leading Israel. Then God uses ordinary people. Look at verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Shiltiel, and Shiltiel begot Zerubbabel. You may know the name Zerubbabel, but not the next one. Zerubbabel begot Abiad, Abiad begot Eliakim, Eliakim begot Azor, Azor Zadok, Zadok, Achim, Achim begot Eliud, 
and on. These are names you probably are not familiar with. And most of the people that God is using to advance his mission are people's names you've never heard of and you never will. Listen, by talking about older, obstinate, outcast, outstanding, and ordinary people, have we left anybody out? Absolutely not. We are. We are. We are. Find a way for God to use you to advance the mission of Christ, especially with these events we've planned for 2017. Find a way to do it. Now, let me tell you, when you do that and you make yourself available to God, He's probably going to give you a task that's going to scare the daylights out of you. Ain't nothing easy in the kingdom of God. Usually, it will require you to have faith and it will stretch it. Rarely is the Christian life comfortable. The, the real one. The, the other one that is manufactured by humans can be comfortable. But the one that God really wants to perform through us is rarely comfortable. That comfort really doesn't come to the other side. And it's in the midst of the tension and the anxiety that we have in fulfilling the Great Commission that God will comfort our hearts. But there's always a need to collapse before God and plead with Him and say, I can't do it. And when we are in that position and of that frame of mind, it's then that God uses us. It's then. That's the extent, or the agents of mission, I should call that. Let's move on to other agents of the mission, verse 18 to 25, or one in particular. And this is the story of Joseph. Mary comes up to Joseph and says, Joseph, you need to understand, I've been faithful, but I'm expecting a baby. And more, he's the son of God. And the Holy Spirit overshadowed me. And I conceived. Well, how did Joseph reply? Well, that's just great. I expected all that to happen from Isaiah 4 and Isaiah uh, chapter 9. That's precisely the way. No, that's not how he responded. He didn't buy it, did he? He didn't believe it for a minute. And so, in verse 18 through, um, verse 18 to 21, an angel visited him at night and said, hey, Joseph, what Mary told you is precisely true. What is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people from his sins. Well, can you imagine the start he had? He nearly wrecked his place in the plan of God. Just about wrecked it all and put her into terrible disrepute. Now, others would do that against her. The Jews would do it. Some of the Romans would as well. But Joseph stood by her. And so the first thing agents of the mission need is flexibility. You need to be ready for God to do something in your life that you didn't expect. And that's okay. That's okay. When God changes course and does something different, and he's done it in my life a whole lot, you just need to be ready. In fact, I would encourage you to practice the Gumby beatitude. Remember Gumby from the 60s and from TV land and some other places? Uh, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be bent out of shape. Isn't that right? And so the agents of the mission need flexibility. But then uh, they need study. Verses 22 through 23. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Well, it was right there in the scripture, and Joseph should have been sensitive to that. But he needed an angelic visit to turn it around and get him on the right track. And then agents of the mission need obedience. Look with me in verses 24 through 25. Oh, this is remarkable. Now, it's at night. The angel visits him. And look what Joseph does. And look at the timing words in verse 24. Then, a timing word. Then Joseph, 
being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife. Whenever the angel spoke to him, he woke up, he did as he said, he went and found Mary and took her as his wife. In other words, I'm impressed, he did it in the middle of the night. And can you imagine that knock on the door? Can you imagine that? And can you imagine her relief? Um, I, I, I'm speculating, but I do suspect that Joseph probably paid a price for this. The tradition says he was a little older. And I can just hear. You can just hear his sisters in the background, can't you? Oh, he's getting older and he's desperate. He'll marry anybody. And here's dad. You did what? See. Um, I'm, I'm concerned that when they got to Bethlehem, there was, there was no family to take them in. That was his hometown. You know, I, I just have to wonder. I'm, I'm reading into it, I'm speculating. I think Joseph was the only member of his family that bought into it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. So he was obedient immediately. Then it says in verse 25, he did not know her. That's a euphemism for the sexual union. He did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. He was obedient to that extent. Well, there's the extent of missions in chapter 2. We have the story here of the wise men. And we have the story of the angel warning Joseph that uh, Herod was on a tear and to take the child to Egypt. And then Joseph returned and the Lord guided him one place and the next until some rulers died and they ended up in Nazareth. Um, I point this out as a missions text because uh, the Magi from the east, the Gentiles from the east come to the king and they worship him. Well, that's the intent. One of the intents of missions is to bring them in submission and worship to the king. And so from the very beginning, you have these pagans who get sensitive and they start following the star and they come to Jesus. That's what they do. We're supposed to see a missionary theme in there. That's precisely what the Old Testament is prophesying. But then um, the uh, wise men are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. Herod understands he's been deceived by the wise men, and he goes on a tear. And he ends up killing all the boys in Bethlehem, age two and younger. How can you live with yourself if you do that? How can you live with yourself? And that's what uh, Herod did. Now, before he took on a tear against the infants and infant boys in uh, Bethlehem, God warned Joseph in a dream to go to Egypt. So here's what you have. You have the wise men coming from... Uh, a, a Gentile nation to worship the king. And then soon after, what you have is that you have Joseph taking Jesus on his first mission trip to Egypt. And so the Son of God goes into Egypt like his ancestors before, and there, there they dwell. Can you imagine the story Mary and Joseph had to tell about their son? They're in Egypt. I mean, don't think for a moment they keep it to themselves. They've got an ordinary life. They get along with people. They interact with them. And so uh, we're to see a mission's intention there. But then the, the extent is not only to the Gentiles, but it's from the resistant. Verses 16 to 23, the Lord directs Joseph and his family away from the different rulers in Israel because they're violent and they're bloody. In other words, he does not deliver the word to them. And this will anticipate Matthew 7, 6 and Matthew 10, 14. Do not give what is holy to dogs and cast your pearls before swine. And God does not do that in chapter 2. 
And then, if they will not hear you, Matthew 10, 14, go outside the city and what? Shake the dust off your feet. Um, let, let me encourage you. Uh, some of you have been obsessing over people for years and decades to turn to Christ, and they're no closer now than they've ever been before. And they've taken up a lot of your time. Well, I don't want to tell you to completely turn them away, but put them on your prayer list and pray for them, but go find somebody who's receptive. Go find somebody receptive. And I, I think that's a good way to do mission strategy and personal ministry strategy as well. Then there's the message of missions that's embodied in John the Baptist. And this is a mission to Israel, which God promised that he would do, and giving them a new heart. And that's what he's attempting to do here through the ministry of John the Baptist in chapter 3. There's the content of the mission's message in verse 2. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that's going to become important in the next chapter. Then there's the intent of the mission's message, verses 3 and 4. For, uh, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Kings, before they would travel, would send servants out uh, a few days before to clean up the road and clean up trash where uh, on they were going to travel. If there were potholes on the road, they would fill them up. If there were some rough places, they would smooth them over. So the king would have just as smooth travel as he could possibly have. He was too glorious and too dignified to have difficult travel on any of the ancient roads. And the prophet Isaiah said God would send someone like that to do to Israel's hearts what these servants would do for the king and the roads. John the Baptist came as a servant to prepare the hearts, to fill up the potholes in the heart, to straighten out the, the crooked roads in the heart, to lower the rough places of the human heart so that Jesus would have easy passage into the heart and into the life. And, you know, that's a, that's a good strategy to practice. Most humans need, lost people especially, need some kind of preparation before uh, they're ready to repent and place faith in Christ. Uh, now, it's not usually as extensive and as long as some think, but some of them oftentimes need something. I remember uh, my grandmother uh, complaining how uh, uh, revivals in local churches uh, developed when she was a, a young adult uh, an end date. It was typical to have a start date to a revival in a church, but they would never schedule an end date. They would just start, and they'd keep preaching and preaching and preaching until the Spirit of God in the people's hearts broke loose and melted into one, and the people in the church got right with God. And when that happened, they were ready to go to the world and start inviting their friends in for an evangelistic harvest. And that's why Billy Graham's crusade in Los Angeles took, what, eight weeks? They had a beginning date, but they didn't have a start. Uh, they, they had a beginning date, but they didn't have an end date. And local churches would do the same. They would start and break the people's hearts. And the people would begin to cry out to God to do something in the community. And then they would have a harvest of people come in. Now, you don't know when that turn would take place. Sometimes it would take a week or two for the people to get their hearts right with God, to repent of their backsliding and their laziness, their disobedience, their neglect, their carelessness, and bad habits and things like that. But once they did, the pastor and the evangelist or the visiting pastor would get together and they would determine now is the time when we need to start reaching lost people. I remember reading in the 50s, not that I was there, but reading literature from the 50s that uh, talked about how evangelists complained when they shortened revivals to two weeks. Now, I've developed an approach to this to where we can do it Sunday through Wednesday night. 
uh, what I do, and you don't know this, I haven't told you until now, but weeks before I start preaching hard and calling people to repentance and get right with God and to flee and hate their backsliding. And their hearts get warm and tender before God, and then we're ready for that time. So um, we, we still do a lot of that. But that's the ministry of John the Baptist, and that's the intent of the mission's message. Then there's the agent of the mission's message. That's John himself in verse 4. Now, John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. This is one reason I don't complain when people are dressed decently on the platform and don't wear a coat and tie. And I'm not going to. Not going to. On our platform, I want there to be room for a Solomon. And I kind of, in 21st century terms, dress that way. I want there to be room for John the Baptist, and Tim takes care of that, okay? <laughs> but folks, there are some, some churches that are so starch white and so rigid and so worked up and exercised over that, they can't break loose and enjoy the Spirit of God, even though someone's dressed decently on the platform. You know, I, I don't, see that, don't see that here, but we're not going to ever become that way. We're going to have room for Solomon and John the Baptist on the platform. Well, he's the agent. And what John is doing, and, and I think it's very wise and very strategic, John is purposely wearing camel's hair and eating locust and wild honey. What he's doing is that he is rebuking. Well, he's reminding people of Elijah, number one. But second, he is rebuking the worldliness of Sadducees, Pharisees, and other religious leaders. And I think there's room for that in symbolism on the platform. So there's the agent of the mission's message. The response in ver is in verses 5 and 6. All Jerusalem, Judea, the region around the Jordan went out to him. They were baptized by him, confessing their sins. Their parents didn't confess their sins when they were infants and get them sprinkled. Instead, they confessed their own sins. They were of uh, a mind and of a maturity to get right with God themselves, confessing their sin. Then they were baptized. Then there's the integrity of the mission's message. Verse 7. <clears throat> well, this will bless your heart. And this, this is quite a method to use. Uh, brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so you've got the most impressive religious people coming for baptism, and John holds them off. He won't let them come. Because he perceives in them that they're broods of vipers. Then there's a threat to the mission, the threat of the mission's message. Here John continues to talk to him and says, don't have a false sense of security in your ethnic descent. God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. That's what he can do. And, and already the axe is laid at the root of the tree. He'd about to chop you down, Israel. And he would in a few decades in AD 70. And, and then he says... Um, he is in his barn with his fork and he is rummaging through the wheat and he is lifting up and, and the chaff is blowing away and he's gathering his wheat into the barn and the chaff he is burning with fire. Three times in this text he uses the word fire and it's not a comfortable word or image. So there's a threat here involved in the mission's message. Sometimes the missionary message can be a little too sentimental and sappy and completely miss these elements. John didn't do that. Then there's the Lord of missions, beginning in verse 13, on down to chapter 4, verse 11. We've looked at these two texts in the last couple of weeks. One, uh, the Lord of the missions is sanctioned by the Father at his baptism. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And then he's tested by the devil. The Spirit led him out to be tested by the devil. He passed the test. And, and so... 
Jesus Christ here is magnified by both heaven and hell in two common experiences, baptism and temptation. So Jesus is magnified and lifted up, and it may explain why William Carey told his nephew about, um, as he was planning his biography, he told Eustace, his nephew, when I am gone, say nothing of Dr. Carey. Speak only of Dr. Carey's Savior. And um, that was easy to do with William Carey. Then we've got the condition of missions. It's, it's all conditioned on going. And we find Jesus going throughout Galilee here in uh, chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now look, look with me. And when you're studying the Bible in sections like this, look for repeated words or words that are similar to one another. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. Uh, well, let's begin in verse 12. Now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. So he's on the move. And leaving Nazareth, he came, he came, and dwelt in Capernaum. So, departed, leaving, came. Uh, then chapter uh, 4, uh, verse number uh, 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers. And so he's on the move again. He is active. He's not passive in his mission work. And then verse 23. And Jesus went about all Galilee. And, and look. Teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sicknesses and diseases among the people is um, what he does here. And look at the extent of his going in verse 25. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. Heavy Hebrew-influenced areas like Jerusalem and Judea, and then intensely Gentile-influenced areas like Decapolis. Um, is where we find Jesus in his ministry. Now, there are three things he did as he's fulfilling this condition of going in his ministry. One, he determined his missionary base in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. He lands at Capernaum near Naphtali and Zebulun, and that reminds Matthew of the prophet Isaiah, where he says in verse 15, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness, the Gentiles who sat in spiritual darkness, have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. So Jesus not only is observing a Jewish mission, Jesus is actually placing himself in his missionary base in Capernaum, which is in the middle of a heavy Gentile region and area. So he determined his missionary base. Then he defined his missionary work. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. He began to verbalize. Now, the word preach here, well, let me put it this way. The word preach in the New Testament really doesn't usually need to be translated into the English word preach. That's a clerical word. That's a ministerial word. It's a pulpit word, traditionally in the English language. It is rarely used that way in the New Testament. Usually it's more like a reporter who reports news. Or it's like a messenger service uh, or a messenger from a king, uh, a press secretary. Who, in other words, it is usually a lay person that's announcing something. Proclaim and preach should probably rarely be used in the New Testament. And we should use substitute English words like announce or tell or share uh, for these particular words. That's the case here in verse 17. 
Uh, Caruso is the word, and that's what a press secretary or uh, the press office of a king would do when sharing news with the world. So Jesus verbalizes this gospel saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is his This is his missionary work. And then he expands it by training others, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So he uses a contextual illustration here in verse 19. He said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so uh, we go from being uh, part of the uh, press office and the communications director of the king, that image, to being fishers. Both of these represent a verbal declaration of the gospel. And, and you can have ministry without verbalizing something. Christian ministry can uh, involve um, other things besides verbalizing the gospel. But you cannot have missions without verbalizing the gospel. And so Jesus ends up speaking the gospel and verbalizing it as well. There are some people who say, well, I'll just let my life shine and that will influence people to Christ. Do you know that even Jesus didn't do that? If anyone could have let their light shine and influence others for salvation, it would have been Jesus, but even Jesus spoke the gospel. And so he defined his missionary work. Then he demonstrated his missionary kingdom. All this is wonderful and lovely. Beginning in verse 23. Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel, again the verbal element, of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Gentile areas, Jerusalem and Judea, intensely Jewish areas, and from beyond the Jordan, mixed areas. Three different marvelous areas here. Well, look, back in verse 17, he's promised the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he demonstrates the future of the kingdom of heaven in verse 23, 24, and verse 25. He gives a preview of that great coming kingdom that he will deliver one day when it is time. How satisfying is that? In other words, the future kingdom of God is going to look like verses 23, 24, and 25. And Jesus gives the trailer here for it. Oh, how satisfying. This is what he's going to do. I mean, (coughs) there's not going to be any sorrow or any suffering, any affordable care act, any disappointing politicians. None of the chaos that we've experienced in our lives. All of it is gone and vanquished before the blazing glory of Jesus Christ. And he's inviting the whole world to embrace his cross and resurrection and get in on it. That may have been what led C.T. Studd to say, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for Him. Don't you just want to follow this one? I, you, you, what, you got somebody better? You got somebody better? Oh no, He's exalted. He's lifted up. Angels tremble in delight when he appears. You see, the, the heart yearns for him when he's near. This is what happens when Jesus is on the scene. And he is here. Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of this age. My goodness, what a, what a, uh, what a mission we have before us. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we, we've got some great dates ahead of us. And I hope that you will take some serious time this week to think through and pray through giving your all to every one of them that we might deliver the beginning experiences of the kingdom for our community and our world.
Father, thank you for the opportunity to look into your world. And oh God, how we pray that you'll make us strong and to follow Jesus. We pray that we would embrace every bit of his mission. We, we pray that we would be met with the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that same interaction that you had with him uh, at his baptism would be real for us. We pray as we go along that we won't be naive. Uh, we do know that we'll be met with some spiritual opposition. And we pray that we'll be ready for that. Would you please descend upon us even this time and revive your ways amongst us because Jesus Christ is worthy. In his name we pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great evening.